Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast with me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere, all about exciting things that you probably don't know, but maybe you should. And uh, I'm not leading this episode, so I'm kind of in the dark as to what's going on. I'm going to hand things over to my beautiful co-host, uh, Neil Delamere, after I tell you a couple of things. One is we are proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. Uh, two is wherever you listen to this, you should follow and subscribe, whatever the language is on your platform. Tell your friends as well. Uh, the more the merrier. We're a very welcoming community and we like all our lovely Why Would You Tell Me That friends to come with us. Uh, so if you like interesting things, you're in the right place. Uh, but Neil Delamer, what are we dealing with today? Well, it's finally happened. You didn't believe me that I could arrange these things, but I've taken compromising pictures of our family and we now have Susie Dent from is Countdown. Susie Dent? Is today the queen of Dictionary Corner, the only lexicographer you'll ever need. She is going to come on the show and tell you what she's going to do. I have been listening back to what we have been speaking about for the last however many episodes, both in season one and season two. Yeah. And we've said words that we thought, oh, I wonder where, where that comes from. So I've collected the weird sentences that we have come across in the last wow. two seasons. And she's going to explain the origins of words, including why you say wishy-washy and zigzag <laughs> rather than the opposite way around. Okay, so you've taken uh, the stuff that we have spewed out on this podcast. Yeah. Which, of course, we wouldn't be thinking about why we're saying this or why we're saying that. But we're going to ask Susie why we say this and why we say that. Absolutely that. Absolutely. Genius. Genius, genius, genius. That's what we have in the second half. So for the first half, because we're in the world of culture, I I thought I would ask you my brother's favorite trivia question for a table quiz. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. Uh, who won the Irish Free State's first Olympic medal after independence? I'm glad to see your nerdiness runs in the family. <laughs> um, who won the Irish Free State's first Olympic medal? Now, I've said this is in the world of, world of culture, so be a bit out there. Okay. Was it our president, Michael D. Higgins? <laughs> Did he, win I, it for, did he win it for the 100 meter poetry competition? <laughs> well, you're not that far off. I thought you were going to say young Katie Taylor. Uh, I love Katie Taylor. Uh, I'd like to thank the baby Jesus for having me battle to show you there with that young one. Um, no, but you were, you were close enough. It wasn't poetry. It was Jack oh. B. Yates. And what did he win it for? Please tell me it was the long jump, triple jump, <laughs> triple jump. Jack B. Oh. Yates was a, was a world-class triple jumper. Oh, man. He had mastered the ability to put the foot on the board but not go over the line. It was him <laughs> and Jonathan Edwards. They're the only triple jumpers I know. No, it was for a painting. It was for a Liffey Swim. You know the Liffey Swim, which is one of his most famous paintings? That won a silver medal in the 1924 Olympics because painting was in the Olympics in 1924. Painting? Yes. And that was the first one. Like, I mean... It's the thing about Olympic sports is they are it's true sportsmanship because obviously everyone's an amateur and it is kind also of. well kind of yeah look at the yeah. American basketball team and all that whatever but like it's also it is the peak of you know athleticism and sport it is four years in the making you work so hard to get there you represent your your country. I've spoken to lots of Olympians. They talk about the pride they feel, the tattoos they get, the unbelievable sexual encounters they get in the Olympic Village, uh, all the important things that happen in uh, in the Olympics. <laughs> but, but like, I'm sorry, painting. 
Like, painting. is it? Was it speed painting? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't speed painting. He wasn't high in any sorts of performance painting enhancing drugs. I should say, um, no painting. It was. I mean, remember, it was only after what nineteen twenty four is only twenty eight years after it was kind of brought back by Pierre de Coubertin. Yeah, but come on, Pierre. Like, in fairness, Pierre. Sorry, painting. what are you? What are you doing down our first Olympic medal winner? Because it's, it's just, just like it's, it's not, not like we're sport. swimming. We're not swimming. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, in Olympic medals. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad we do have one, but I'm just a bit disappointed that it's for something that plainly isn't a sporting achievement. I can see it's... the tension in your house. Your wife is an excellent painter. <laughs> she is an and artist. She, yes. she can hear, overhear me now, she's going to come in and punch me in the nose and go, I am an Olympic-level painter. By the way, oh. I should tell everyone, check out TracySheridanArt.com if you'd like a lovely little gift before Christmas. <laughs> yes, I've seen her work, and it is excellent, I have to say. So let's move on from that. By the way, I know British listeners will be laughing at our use of table quiz. You know, they don't say table quiz. It's always pub quiz. And it's I always been, pub quiz. I have been mocked many a time. So well, Hang on, because we even call table quizzes that take place in pubs table quizzes. Table quizzes, I know. Yeah. And until those two cultures can actually align on that, I don't think there'll ever be peace, true peace between <laughs> our two islands. That's why. Because uh, Susie Dent's been on the show, I've been looking up articles that she she has uh, written. And she's amazing, amazing. Like, what does this world mean? So let's start with bags of mystery. What's a bag of mystery, Dave? It is a, a Victorian nickname for a sausage, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that not persist today? We are none the wiser <laughs> exactly. as to what is in a sausage. I thought, do you know that there's a male contraceptive pill now? And you can't really ever trust a fella to take a male contraceptive pill? <laughs> I think a bag of mystery is what the researchers should have called the scrotum during... <laughs> During the trial, placebo <laughs> yes. bag of mystery, a real bag of mystery. Um, in the same article she wrote, now this is one of my favourite words, have you ever heard of the word corsned? I've never heard of it. Corsned, no. C-O-R-S-N-E-D. It does sound like some kind of mouthwash, but no, I haven't heard of it. So in old English law, an accused person's guilt or innocence might be decided by seeing whether they were able to swallow a large piece of mouldy and exercised bread. What? Yeah, that was one of the ways. Rather than necessarily, you know, putting them into the river to see if they float, this was one of the ways to do it. So you determine guilt by whether or not you can eat mouldy bread. Yeah, yeah. So Dave Moore, you've been accused of something. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, should we weigh up all the evidence? Should we, you know, investigate all the leads that have come about from talking to the witnesses, from examining the crime scene? Or, or should we ring Pat the Baker and get... <laughs> Some of his product from the end of the day. No, no, so, sorry. So he, he's so fresh, it's famous. So that's no good. That's no use to us at all. What about no. Brennan's? That's too fresh as well. That's today's yeah. bread today. We need today's bread in about two weeks from now. And then we see if you can swallow it. And if you choke and can't swallow it, you are clearly guilty of the crime and should be punished. So all competitive eaters are just innocent of everything. If I was a competitive eater, I'd be going around murdering people left, right and center. And then going, here, check it out. Look, the whole pan's gone. I'm innocent. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, there's, there's, there's probably, like, if you were a serial killer and you had the need to kill people, there's probably kind of a, a, a calculation you can do where it is worth knocking all my teeth out. <laughs> Getting a new salivary gland put in. Imagine if you overproduce saliva. <laughs> that just went down like a milkshake. You're like, hey, bring it on. This is, this is bad as painting in the Olympics, this one. <laughs> okay. What is Neapolitan bone ache? Neapolitan bone ache. There's no yeah. way you're pronouncing that right. <laughs> no, that's bone-ache. absolutely right. It's actually, it's not bony actually or anything like that. It right, is right, Neapolitan right. bone ache. Uh, look, I don't know if you're guessing something nonsensical, so I'll, I'll just immediately just like, succumb to your knowledge. What is this? When you are 15 or 16 as a young boy and you get an unwanted erection and you just have to dip it in ice cream. No, Shut up! The- <laughs> no, Shut up! That's never getting into the podcast, is it? Actually, no, it is because we can put what we want in the podcast. <laughs> yes, we can. It was another word for syphilis. Neapolitan bone ache. Yeah. Syphilis, a particular taboo in the 15th century, believed to have been caused by moral depravity. Right. So it's given all these kind of euphemistic names. Cupid's measles was one. Wow. Uh, unlike other measles. I, I suppose there's no... You know, isn't there chicken pox parties? Do you know where if you can yes. get... Yeah, I assume there's no sort of... <laughs> that's syphilis, an orgy actually <laughs> parties are definitely not something you want to go to no no matter what age you are so it's called Cupid's measles French marbles and Shakespeare called it Neapolitan bonic Neapolitan bonic that's phenomenal 
And this is what they used to do. It demonstrates this. Different countries used to call it different names, and usually this pejorative term using involving another country. Right. So, so uh, the Italians called syphilis morbus gallus the French disease, right. and the French called it uh, mal de Naples. And then, do we have any? I'm not that you're supposed to know this. Is Susie Dent is going to know these kind of things? But what about German measles? I wonder, was that born out of some kind of a country slang? Maybe so, or Spanish flu. We've been told not yeah. to call Spanish flu Spanish flu anymore, haven't we? Yeah. And uh, monkeypox has changed its name this week to mpox. Mpox. And then don't forget, there was all those variations, remember, of COVID-19, and they were all yes. location-based. And then people realized, you know what, this probably isn't a very good idea to call like variations of a disease after a place. So we will call um, it by Greek letters, yeah, because mm. they're easily pronounced and they're not offensive. I do know the origin of the word syphilis itself. Oh, charming. I think we should maybe leave that to Susie. To Denver. Susie. Okay. Okay. Well, can, I just, can I just guess then, of at least its, it's nationality of origin, things with PHs tend to be Greek. Oh, yes, yes. The word syphilis is definitely Greek, yeah. Okay, okay. We'll get back to that with Susie, right. Do you know, sometimes you feel guilty for not knowing something and you think, <laughs> I should know this. This is so amazing, right? Yeah, it's... that's the whole premise of our podcast. Now, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. If you don't know the thing that we're telling you, you should feel hugely guilty. The only way to uh, prove that you're no longer guilty is by consuming the podcast or eating the moldy bread that we send out with every episode. Basically, consumed by guilt and eating moldy bread, you have just described the Catholic Church's <laughs> business model <laughs> for 2,000 right. years, haven't, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, that's what exactly it. You're an absolute genius. Um, I came across, and, I know, and I've since checked out, we have 75 listeners in South Korea. Oh, right? hi, guys. Yeah, hi, guys. They're going to be annoyed at us. Uh, there is something called the Tripitaka Coriana. I think this is genuinely amazing. Okay. Have you heard of it? No. It sounds like Tripitaka Coriana. It sounds like, I don't know, some kind of rhyming slang. It's It means three baskets in Sanskrit, right? It's right. 81,258 wooden blocks. <laughs> thought to be the world's f- most complete collection of Buddhist texts. And it's from the 13th century. I'm sorry, it's wooden blocks. It's wooden blocks. Basically, it was described on Twitter as the most successful large data transfer over time yet achieved by humankind. It's 52 million characters of information transmitted over nearly eight centuries with zero data loss. You can still print from these blocks. This was the intention of these blocks. My God. So basically what it is, is the Tripitaka is, is three baskets and it's it's commentaries on the sutras by renowned monks and scholars. It's the regulations of monastic life and it's discourses with the Buddha. There was about 60,000 blocks before these 81,258 blocks and they were destroyed by fire in the, in the Mongol invasion. Uh, and so the guys did it again. OK, let me try and get this straight. Maybe our listeners are feeling like I am. So. These monks carved 81,000 blocks, which contained information that could then be printed on paper from the blocks. Yeah. Meaning, as you described it, that it is a data transfer, which we now obviously assume only came in the age of computers. But obviously, I guess that's what a book is, if you think about it. Um, So they created this in order to, to keep a record of the musings of the monks and whatever else that you just described there. But it's got how many million characters? 50 million. 52,330,152 characters organized over 1,496 titles and 6,568 volumes. This is basically Wikipedia. (laughs) That's not what it is. It's Wikipedia. For for Buddhism, it's absolutely incredible. Each woodblock measures 24 centimeters in height and about 70 centimeters in length, right? The thickness of them is between 2.6 and 4 centimetres. One weighs, say, 3 or 4 kilograms. So there are 81,000 of them. Absolutely pristine conditions. And what's amazing is how they were made and that they haven't decayed. If you think of how uh, humid that part of the world is, and you've got insects as well, these are all perfect. So they're in a Buddhist temple in Gaiasan National Park in South Korea, right? Wow. Um, They were taken out recently enough in the 70s because the state was like oh let's put them in a kind of a concrete bunker because Mm. there might be fire or there might be bombing or whatever and they started after a few months to get condensation so they put them back into the 15th century buildings in the temple 
where they're actually stored the because they're specially designed. Mm. Oh, wow. I didn't realize how big they were until you described them being 24 centimeters tall and, and 70 centimeters long. I'm seeing one issue. I mean, we all know that the smartphone, you know, you can get a smartphone about the size of a deck of cards and that contains the sum of all human knowledge and possibly even more aliens. Who knows, guys, aliens. It's not really practical to carry around 81,000 24 by 70 centimeter wooden blocks, each one weighing three kilos. You'd have a hell of a pocket. Yeah, you would have a huge pocket. I would go so far as to say it's an apron, Dave. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, well, can I tell you the most amazing thing about the word apron? Yes, you can. The word apron yeah. is actually napron. And over time, we have stolen the N from the start of napron, put it onto the an, and got an apron. But a nape is a piece of cloth, and a napron was the thing you wore over your clothes to protect you from cooking or whatever. It was an apron, an apron, an apron, an apron. Love it. It's like an orange. No, it's like an orange, isn't it? It's the same thing. Naranja. Orange. Orange. Exactly. There you go. God, we're like Susie, mini Susie Dance we are. <laughs> Susie Dance light. <laughs> we're like, no, she is Gru and we are the minions. Yeah, That's, yeah, definitely, definitely. This is amazing. Each block was made of birch wood and treated to prevent the decay of the wood. So... Soaked in seawater for three years, then cut and then boiled in salt water. So wow. that's why they, ha- they haven't decayed and they haven't warped. And they're in this Buddhist temple, right? It's the clay roof, the wooden rafters, they prevent abrupt changes in temperature. Right. Beneath the floor, the mud floor of the depository chambers are charcoal, then salt, then finally limestone. And they, they absorb excess moisture, moisture. during the monsoon yeah, yeah, season yeah. and then release it during the dry winter when the humidity levels fall. It's high above sea level, so the wind and the sunlight kind of calm down the natural humidity. And then, depending on whether it's the front or the back of the building, the lower and upper windows are higher, are, are bigger or smaller to govern air circulation. This is literally one of the most interesting things you've ever said to me. I thought, I think it's absolutely amazing. And it's on, it's in, you know, UNESCO recognizes it and it's, it's on the, uh, um, every single sort of, tourist trail now but yeah I, i've never heard of it tell me the name of it again it's called the tripitaka coriana tripitaka coriana tripitaka as you said meaning three three baskets and, so and the three parts of it seem to be uh discourses with the buddha regulations on monastic life being a monk what to right. do how to how to eat that sort of stuff you know when you should be saying your prayers when you should be meditating uh and commentaries on the sutras by renowned monks and and, and scholars well, can I just say, to the 75 people from South Korea who listen to this podcast, the only Korean I know is Anyang, which I'm pretty sure means high. So Anyang to use, and you're absolutely incredible, Tripitaka. Like, uh, I, I don't even, do we even need Susie Dent? I mean, this podcast is, I think, you know, you know the thing you do where you just, you, you wipe your hands? Like, yeah. don't. Yeah, but I think we can, I think she's going to elevate it even further beyond this. Well, I cannot wait to find out whether she does or not. I know she's going to, but yes, let's bring on Susie Dent. Stick around. Part two, we're going to talk to everybody's favourite lexicographer. If you have more than one, fair play to you. (laughs) Susie Dent from Countdown is coming up in part two. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? We are delighted to welcome the queen of Dictionary Corner, the best thing about Countdown, don't tell Rachel Riley or Colin Murray, and the only <laughs> famous lexicographer that we know, Susie Dent. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. The only lexicographer that anyone knows, let's face it. <laughs> do you know more lexicographers, Susie Dent? Yes, I do. And they're honestly, generally far better than me. I just happen to end up in the corner on telly. So I feel like a, a bit of a fraud here, but yeah. Well, I'm sure you would. You could possibly end up on the corner of a television programme, but it's staying there for this length of time, <laughs> which is t- testament to your abilities and fairness. I can't believe the first question you asked Susie did was, do you know any other lexicographers? <laughs> like she had executed all the rest of them to ensure that she sat at top you of the You made tree. that inference, Neil. I was, uh, I was not an underlying threat. Yeah, wouldn't it just? <laughs> uh, but come here, no, we must say thank you because Neil has been kind of, uh, you know, on a mission since he first first met you the first time he did countdown uh, and we were very proud of neil to go on countdown on this podcast we're we're, we're watching his career rocket through the skies uh, but getting Susie dent on this podcast it just seemed like such a perfect vehicle for you Susie, to come on because we like to bring people amazing stories and i think the stories behind words is going to be something our listeners will absolutely love oh well i really hope so and um and it was delight and everybody genuinely loved you neil um on countdown and loves you so long met continue your stories are just yeah well they keep us all going you know when it's supposed to be monday morning and we're bright and bushy-tailed when in fact it's the 15th show of a block and we're just on late on a thursday evening <laughs> if neil is there it's all right thank you very much for doing the podcast we're not going to do the rest of it <laughs> i just got to just record that and play so what i've what i've done for this show is um We've been doing the podcast for a couple of seasons now, and we often say interesting words or phrases, and they've just kind of popped up. So I thought I'd troll through the archives and try and figure out why we say some of the words we do and where they came from. Mm -hmm. I know it's a little bit meta, but anyway. (laughs) Um, So let's start with something that we said in the Bats episode. There's an episode about bats, which is uh, about why bats don't get old, essentially. And we mentioned the phrase wishy-washy mm-hmm. you've done a brilliant video about why we say wishy-washy and not washy-wishy what is this yeah well this is uh one of the few rules that english has i mean let's face it nothing works i before e except after c i think an episode of qi calculated there was some like 923 exceptions to that rule actually one of my favorite ones of those <laughs> susie is that it's i before e except in science yeah, because <laughs> obviously that word itself has got the other way around. Very, yeah, very good. I mean, it's just, it's a ridiculous rule. It doesn't work and there's no point in teaching it to our kids. So um, we we have to settle with no rules, except there are a couple, at least, uh, of rules that we don't know we know. And this is one of them. And it goes by the really alienating term, ablaut reduplication. Um, where ablaut is a kind of vowel shift, really. And the reduplication bit is all about things like wishy-washy, dilly-dally, shilly-shally, ding-dong, tick-tock. Ticky-tacky we'll know from football as well. Ticky-tacky football. Exactly. Zigzag. Zigzag, all of these. And uh, the the kind of rule um, or unspoken rule is all about sound, um, essentially. And it's all about the vowel sounds moving from the front to the back of your mouth. And it just, we just immerse in it. We don't need to learn it because we just absorb this as we're growing up. So it just explains why bells don't go dong ding and we don't play pong ping, although pong ping would be brilliant, <laughs> yeah. um, or wear flop flips or eat cat 
kits while watching <laughs> Top Tick. Um, so, yeah, all, all of these. It's one of those unspoken rules. And another one is uh, all about the rule of adjective order. There is an order to the way that we string adjectives together, only we don't really know it, but we just do it naturally. And that's a whole nother thing. Because I speak a few languages, Susie, and I think one of the things that that I love in learning foreign languages are the rules yeah. because that's what helps me structure it in my head and go, well, I know that this must obey. So I speak Russian, for example, where, you know, every adjective and noun have 12 different possible endings and you just, they, they naturally, but you, but you know the rules. And then I look at English and I go, how does anyone learn this weird language? It's, it's like, what did I say? It's like three languages in a trench coat pretending to be another language. Like it's, <laughs> it's not real. Like, I love that. Just, <laughs> Like, and especially that that adjective order you talk about. Like in, in German, we go time, manner, place. Yes. And we learn that, and that's a strict rule, and that makes sense. But in English, if we hear it out of order, we know it's wrong, but there's no way you'd be able to write down what, what the actual order is I know, to be. and it's a ridiculous list of things that even I, you know, studying English, I can't really uh, do it. Well, I say I studied English. I learned all my grammar and syntax through German because we just didn't really learn English grammar, did we? Uh, and... And I love German for, I guess, maybe because there are rules, but also it's quite anarchic as well, and that you can just famously, you know, play around with it like Lego and come up with all sorts of ridiculous concoctions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, we're just so lucky that we're native speakers of English and we don't have to, you know, look at this because it's, it's a nightmare. I was trying to explain to some Spanish speakers the other day why saying she's ambitious mm -hmm. is not necessarily a positive thing and that it's actually got all sorts of connotations that you wouldn't know if you just looked ambitious up in a dictionary and especially if it's a she's ambitious rather than he because it implies that she's really cutthroat doesn't care about anybody else whereas oh. ambition you should would think is a is a very positive a positive thing. trait yeah. yeah and if you look if she you say she's ambitious in ireland or england versus she's ambitious in america it, it has more negative connotations here than it would have yeah, there, I think. I think it does. And uh, and also try, I was trying to, to talk about all the words that are only applied to women like um, bossy or stroppy or mm. hysterical. Um, and Shrill. It, shrill is another one. Um, frumpy. I mean, you know, frigid. There are just loads. And, and, and trying to explain that is really tricky as well. So, I mean, I know obviously other languages have all these nuances that, that we have to you know absorb as well if we're learning them but english is so gnarly that's why i love it well yeah as a native speaker i agree with you but thankfully we don't have to learn and study it <laughs> yes we're lucky. dave you said mesmerizing in the squids episode because oh, they yeah. are mesmerizing mm. creatures i know psychologists well he's actually a psychiatrist and he'll get annoyed if i call him a psychologist <laughs> um and he explained to me where the word mesmer comes from uh, because it is mesmer gives us mesmerizing Susie, do you want to tell us? Yeah, so it's um, it's an eponym and uh, it's named after Franz Anton Mesmer. And he uh, believed essentially, uh, he, he was kind of a sensation of 18th century Europe. And he believed that the planets have a direct influence on not just our fate, like Shakespeare believed, or, um, you know, for years people thought a disaster, which comes from bad stars or ill-starred, comes from the sort of evil kind of planetary influence. But he, Mesmer believed that the planets ruled our bodily tissues as well. And he thought that uh, there was this mysterious fluid that, that basically runs through all matter and he called it um, animal magnetism, essentially. And a lot of people saw him as a sort of practitioner of magic, uh, but he made yeah, and sort of, you know, the wrong kind of magic. But right. he made a name for himself in Paris. And he, I think Marie Antoinette was one of the people who just um, kind of fell in love with what he was doing. And he became a kind of go-to doctor, really. And he would, for some treatment, he would um, get patients to join hands in a circle and sit around this tub of sulfuric acid. And there would be iron bars coming out of this sulfuric acid, which had been touched by Mesber. And so given animal magnetism and then he touched each patient and they squirmed and writhed and things. And then the whole circle became really agitated and they were called kind of crises of the body that were thought to be a cure. And um, anyway, he it, long story short, but he he had to flee Paris in the end in the wake of the revolution, French Revolution. Um, and he essentially was promoting and it was later recognized this kind of um, 
artificial state that became known as hypnotism and the notion that actually what the patient was doing through this kind of agitation was actually helping their recovery and and it was one of Mesmer's disciples really who then developed this technique for hypnosis and things but yeah Mesmer was said to be mesmerizing his patients and he was loved and hated in equal measure I would say. Wow, that's incredible. I do love a good eponym. And I know in one of your most recent, your own podcasts, you talked about chocolate. Uh, Everybody should listen to Something Rhymes With Purple. It's absolutely amazing podcast. Thank you. Uh, But you talked about chocolate. You talked about praline was named as an eponym for someone. Let let people listen to it in that podcast, not this one. I do love an eponym. And aren't there things like um, boycott uh, to, to lynch? They're all from, yes. from people's names. I know some they? sort of quite horrible things. Um, mm. So obviously um, lynching, um, Derek, as in D-E-R-R-I-C-K, which was a, a byword for a, for a kind of scaffold going up to the gallows. Um, that was named after somebody. Um, Boycott was a, an Englishman, you, will, you guys probably know this, working in um, Ireland. And he was working for a... Well, he was a land agent, essentially, in um, County Mayo, I think it was. And at the time, the Irish Land League was crying out for reform of land holdings and the mm. money that uh, needed to be paid by tenants. And big, he was subject to big sort of mob attacks. And um, the, the protesters basically said that no one should serve him at shops, that they should ignore him and his family, that any food should be brought in elsewhere from, uh, you know, from outside because he and he couldn't even get his letters delivered. I think so, really unpleasant for him. But obviously, he was a symbol of kind of you know tyranny and, um, you know, the imposition of taxes and that kind of thing. Anyway, and he was he, literally boycotted. Yes, yeah, so he was in the end. That, and this was literally at the time. So quite often, eponyms are emerge, you know, after that person has yes. done what they've done that and sometimes centuries later. But this one actually at the same time, I think it became such a headline in uh, the Times in London and things that they actually began to talk about boycotting and it was it was down to him. And this is where we introduce syphilis to the conversation. Syphilis. <laughs> you did say that. Neil. Yes. It is actually named after someone. Uh, well kind of. Yeah, fictional characters. So Am I right? You've been talking about Neapolitan Bonate, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> it's what we start every day off Of with. course. Um, well, that is because, as you know, then, it, basically every country blames syphilis on another country because it was always someone else's disease. And, you know, like like we have, um, we always used to think that the French were incredibly saucy. So we have French letters and French kisses and French knickers and pardon my French and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I've always loved the kind of stereotypes that we attach to other countries. But yeah, so syphilis was the character, I think the, the heroine, I'm not sure if it was a hero or heroine actually, because I've not read it, but it was a Latin poem, um, essentially. And it was a, a Latin poem, which also in its title mentioned Morbus Gallus, uh, which is the French disease. So this was not blaming right. it on the Italians, but it was blaming it on the French. And uh, syphilis was said to have contracted this disease. And uh, yeah, so not, not, a, not a kind of true life eponym, but yeah, named after a character. It goes back to a story by Girolamo Fracastauro, is his name. Wow, you are fluent in ancient Latin. Or or Hieronymus Hieronymus Fracatorius is much easier to say for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was a a shepherd who uh, annoyed the sun god and he got syphilis. There you go. Oh, so it was a he. Okay. Syphilis sounds quite quite feminine, really, doesn't it? Syphilis. I suppose in Latin, ending in IS would be male. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. just you mentioned their uh, French, all the French things. Why in English, or maybe it's the same in all languages, but when we take some countries, we take a very literal or a, or a, an, a kind of a sound transliteration of the word. So la France, we look at France and go, in English, that's France. Yeah. Let's just call it that. Italia, okay, Italy, whatever, it's close. But then I think of things like Deutschland, Germany, Suomi, Finland, and what's Hungary is like Magororzag or something, and we've gone hungry. Like, do you have any idea why these other English names for countries have come about? I think it's partly because we really struggle with other 
you know languages i mean every 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 country does to be fair it's not just us i know we're um stereotypically terrible at other languages but <laughs> there are so many examples in english of how we've just mangled foreign word and made it into something completely different uh so I always tell the story of the Jerusalem artichoke, which has nothing to do with Jerusalem at all and everything to do with the fact that we couldn't pronounce um, the Italian girasola, which is sunflower, because right. it's, a, it's not even an artichoke. <laughs> I think it's a no. heliotrope. It turns towards the sun anyway. And girasola sounded a bit like Jerusalem, so we thought that'll do. Well, that'll do us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and likewise, uh, what's another one? The avocado is an Aztec word, famously meaning testicle. I think a lot of people yes. know this. Um, but it, the, I think it was the Portuguese who first tasted it and heard the Nahuatl word for it in Aztec, which was something like Ahuatl. And they thought, sounds a bit like avocado. And it meant a solicitor, but that didn't matter because uh, it sounded a bit like that. And then we yes. really struggled with it and called it the alligator pear for a while, much <laughs> like asparagus was called sparrow grass because we couldn't say asparagus. So that sparrow grass was the name for asparagus for quite a long time. So I think it's partly that and also partly probably oh, to do with empire in some yes. cases and colonial and just sort of stamping our own, you know, our, our own... Well- Look, we, we, we don't want to bring it up, Neil, do we? But we, we do live in a country which, of course, has had English rule. And we look at the English names we have for all of our towns and go, is that the best you could I do? Bet. That? <laughs> I put bet. The start of that word at the end of that word. And this is what we got. Yeah. Listen, once we once we introduce boycott to the conversation, we were, we were going to get to imperialism <laughs> at some point. True, well, I true. agree. And also, it might be, you know, maybe, maybe um, all the place names will be reclaimed at some point like Snowden and you know other places it's mm, definitely a move yeah. afoot I think have I told you my asparagus story Dave no, when I don't we, think so when does I it went involve to... we it always involves we yeah, no it oh, doesn't okay. no surprisingly it doesn't I went to Peru and I was flagging on the Andes and one of the guides went do you want to try some asparagus or no do you want to try some I think it was coca leaves or something like this he goes and make you feel like asparagus I was like, what? He goes, it'll make you feel like asparagus, you know, big, big and strong like asparagus. So like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you know the film with Kirk Douglas? Asparagus. I'm asparagus. Oh, no, no, I I'm asparagus. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. I love you. you have to tell that on Countdown um, next time you're on. I will, I will. Um, talking of Countdown, you mentioned to me about, um, while we're talking about boycotts and Lynch and all the rest, didn't you say to me... Uh, Galvini, is he galvanised? He was one of your favourites. Oh, yeah, yeah, because he, he just sounds like he was another character, really. Um, so this was in the 18th century, and uh, so before the French Revolution, but um, an Italian physiologist called Luigi Galvini, I think he was, decided to go out in his back garden, and he loved experimenting, and he took... Um, uh, a lightning rod and took the corpse of a frog and put it out on his garden table and a storm was coming apparently and so he connected the lightning rod to the frog and waited and whenever lightning flashed nearby energy would course down the rod and the frog's leg would kind of twitch Wow! and uh, so he he just was ecstatic over this and then was convinced that electricity was linked to movement and began to do these kind of controlled lab experiments where, again, he would make um, limbs twitch and things. And that was his magnum opus, really. It's a theory that animals generate electricity and they use this to make their body move. And this animal electricity theory just kind of sent shockwaves, really, through the through the community. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, it was it, interesting because I think also it was quite transformative in the life of, and I think he was called Alessandro Volta, and he was a professor of physics in Italy. And he was so inspired by Galvini that he started doing his own works into animal electricity. He he actually dispelled a lot of the myths, myths, not myths, myths. Um, <laughs> but it was thanks to Volta anyway that we got the volts of electricity. Right. So that's another eponym. Okay. Wow. Yeah, but yeah, it all began with frogs. Like our series, Dave. Yes, it? actually it did, yeah. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, we, we talked about the Hogman test, which is uh, for 30 years between the 30s and the 60s was the only reliable test in the Western world for pregnancy, where you get uh, a woman's urine who you think is pregnant and you inject it into a frog. Xenopus, I think the frog was. Poor frog. Is this a live frog? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if it, if it um, ovulates spontaneously, well, then the hormone is in the woman's uh, urine and that's a pregnancy test. I just feel sorry for the frog. 
there. Yeah. Yeah. That there's a lot, I'll be honest oh. with you. A lot of this series is us feeling sorry for various different animals. Yes. And let me tell you, Susie, if you listen to that episode, that frog is definitely the, the most pleasant of all of the animals we were introduced to. And in that it, it was a terrible, shocking episode. Oh, <laughs> yes. Anybody wants to look up the Myers Suriname toad and never eat waffles again. That's all I'll say. Waffles? Um, OK. I'm not yeah, listening um, to that. I love waffles. <laughs> I saw the Reverend Richard Coles oh, uh, yeah. tweeting about dunce mm. and and dunce changing its meaning and dunce was a person who was well respected but then yeah his reputation got hammered and we got dunce in the opposite way from that dan scottis he was uh he was john dan scottis and it, as you say he was i think he was admired and he got loads and loads of followers and it, he was a franciscan monk essentially, and was really clever um, and very creative, apparently. And he talked about philosophy and theology. But he, I think, insisted uh, on the concept of free will and um, said that human reasoning couldn't prove the existence of God. It came down to faith alone, which is you know what a lot of people say now. But mm-hmm. um, followers of other people like Thomas Aquinas or whatever said, no, this isn't true because actually faith and reason have to coexist and they have to be there in perfect harmony and because he kept trashing Duns Scottus his reputation then took a dive and so followers of him were known as dunces uh, for short and um, this is like in the 17th century or even earlier maybe 16th century and by the 17th century you know you had your kind of dunce tables for um, students who were considered a bit below par and then the dunce's hat famously and that kind of thing but it's interesting that kind of followers of people this is great word and it's I don't know if anybody would ever use it because it doesn't trip off the tongue but ipse dixitism (laughs) but it's just perfect for it's perfect for today really because an ipse dixitist is someone who follows another person because they believe everything they say blindly they're just kind of you know slavishly follow and it goes back to the latin ipse dixit and that itself was a translation of a greek phrase anyway um it, it was all about followers of pythagoras and basically they said well if pythagoras said it it must be true and ipse dixit means he said it himself so I think it's brilliant, you know, for, for followers of Trump and, and things. There's another great word, sequacious, which, again, means blindly following another person. But, um, yeah, they're just, just lots of kind of disciples of people who have variously sunk in reputation because, you know, they were they were catch farts, as they used to call them. You know, they would just follow catch them. Catch farts. Catch farts, one of my favorite <laughs> words. Yeah, catch fart <laughs> is a 17th century insult. Honestly, don't get me started on insults because the dictionary has so many brilliant <laughs> ones. But a catch fart is a, or was a footman or a valet who followed their master or mistress so closely that they were in the firing line oh, for more than wow. just instructions. Yeah. Catch we fart. have been looking for um, a snappy title for the fans of this podcast. <laughs> well, lick spittles or catch farts. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Either are. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we can we cross the Atlantic to the States for a second? Because our, some of our listeners got in touch and some of them were slagging me because I am a sneakerhead. And that is a term used to describe people who are obsessed with sneaker culture. And it's we're in Ireland. We don't say sneakers as a culture in a regular. We say runners. Trainers. I know. Yeah. In the UK, it's trainers. Yeah. In America, Gutties. It's tennis shoes. Gutties for oh, yes. Neil. Tackies Sunnies. is another one. Yeah. yeah. See, they're all there. But I'd say sneakers or kicks. And they are two yes. words I use because they are words used in the culture. But I'm, I was thinking about particularly words in English and Ireland and the UK that have come from America. Like there are so many, aren't there, that, that that have come across into into our language, even back year, like in Shakespearean times. Yeah, yes. So I am always sticking up for American English Day because it gets such a hard rap. And I think you know I understand because you know some of the voices thundering across the Atlantic recently haven't been to uh, most of our taste, but. Mm. Um, Yes, even in Shakespeare's time, you will find, for example, in his first folio, honour without the U, you know, wildly outscoring honour with the U. Same with rumour, same with rigour, I think. Um, you'll find realise, well, I-Z-E, whoop, which is how I spell it. Um, <laughs> and it's, the, it's the Oxford way, I have to say, because it's closer to the, the Greek because they come from a Greek root, I-Z-O. But every time I write realise in a tweet, people say, I can't believe you use the American way. And, you know, when when the 
Pilgrim Fathers set sail on the Mayflower. English was just, we think it's chaotic now, but it honestly yeah. was all over the shop. And Shakespeare spelled his own name differently twice on the same document, and that was this will. Um, and, wow. And he didn't spell it the way that we spell it today either. And, um, you know, dialect was this kind of wonderful mishmash. It was glorious, but it was also, you know, we're still unregulated, but it, it was a mm. bit of a, a sort of, yeah, it was a bit of a chaotic mess. And and all of these kind of went over. But, you know, I think, first of all, American words are wonderful. Things like skedaddle is one of my favorite words. And I know that when the early settlers from here were, um, you know, making their homes and stuff, it wasn't always a happy meeting with the indigenous people so it was a kind of story of plundering as much as it was um you know settlement but they kind of you know they saw these new things and they had to find words for them so they borrowed from the indigenous languages so we have things like possum or tomahawk or expressions like burying the hatchet which is from um, a native american habit of literally burying your weapons as a sign of peace and so they were kind of inventors by necessity really and i just think it carries that history with it and and so quite often, I don't know, I think we we just assume that it's the inferior kind of English. Yeah. But guess what we used to call autumn? Fall. <laughs> because yes, we have the fall of the leaf. Which I think and is one of my favourite words in a foreign language of all is the Czech word for November, which is listopad, which is the falling of the leaf, the leaf yes. falls. It's just, it's beautiful. it's beautiful. And we do... We go, oh, it's autumn, how, autumn, how, autumnal, how dare you with your fall? Like, fall makes so much sense. It does, and that's why I think it is beautiful and quite poetic. So spring is short for spring of the leaf. So we had spring of the leaf and fall of the leaf. But no, then the Normans came along, we decided that French was cool and it was fashionable. <laughs> and it was the, are you Norman? Are you Norman? De la mer. De la oh, mer. Of course, of the sea. La so you came across the sea as a conqueror. I came as a conqueror. Oh. And in many ways, that's how I think of myself still. <laughs> Okay, well, it was thanks to your Loton that we decided let's ditch harvest and fall and things and um, and let's ditch sidewalk, which was perfectly doing you know, a lovely job for pavement and all of that stuff. So it, it's really all about fashion, our language choices. So anyway, going back to Americanisms, I think we would all be speaking like Americans if we weren't so hung up about not sounding like an American. And right. it's two-way traffic as well. They take some of our words, you know, too, well, so. One of the ones that does, I think, annoy English speakers on this side of the water is when they leave the S out of maths and say oh, yeah. math. Yes. Like, I mean, some of the ones we can understand, I think we, but that one has always kind of confused me as to, why mathematics, which is always a plural word, and we shortened mathematics to maths in my yes. eyes anyway, uh, why have they <laughs> like singularized it again? Well, actually, it depends. If you were an etymologist, you could go either way because it goes back to the Greek mathematikos, and you can take that either as a, something like a genitive plural or a plural noun. And yes. if it's the genitive plural, you can make it singular. And the very first reference in the OED is to math. Um, not math although granted i think it has got a full stop at the end of it suggesting an abbreviation but honestly it's it's unclear <laughs> it's a muddy picture uh, the other thing people hate is um can i get you know can i get a cappuccino but again you find something similar not to do with cappuccinos or espressos in shakespeare too so hang on do you mean can i get versus may i have yeah, I don't know if you guys get equally worked up about it. No, this. not at all. Oh, okay. P people hate it. Can I get a cappuccino? No, you can't. You can get out <laughs> is what most people think. Um, or I think it's I think it's because I think if America wasn't so culturally informative and culturally influential, we on this side of the world wouldn't be as scared as taking on their phrases. Yes. The reason we are is because we are protective of how we speak English and like if it was if we produce as many films and as many artists and as and much music as they did yes i think there'll be an equal flow but we are much more isolationist in that regard i think yeah and I, you know it was a such a deliberate act between britain and, and america of course because they wanted independent languages so you know samuel johnson said something like uh i love everybody in the world apart from an american and noah webster was like oh we need to kind of you know get our language back so they deliberately went separate ways and it was a mark of you know, identity. So I can understand that. But the other thing yeah. that Noah Webster, the American lexicographer, did was he tried to simplify 
spellings, which is why center or center is spelled E-R, which would be so much easier for a British English school kid to learn than rather yes. than the French centre. centre but yeah. yeah, but I mean, with spelling, I think we're never going to be able to iron it out because it's just had so many different influences on it that it's a you know losing battle, really. Can I ask a question that is, listen, you might know, you might not know. Why do English people say, put an R at the end of an a word that has a an a vowel. <laughs> How do I explain this? Okay. So English people will say arena rather than arena. Oh yeah. Um I guess just because it fits more easily, arena. I one of the I'm really fascinated by produ- uh, pronunciation changes because I used to get okay, I'm gonna ask you you both you both. How would you pronounce or say the adjective meaningful of mischief? Ah, mischievous. I, this was just on our, sh- our radio show today. I actually, was talking about this. So it, I would say mischievous, exactly. Okay, the same so both of you say mischievous. Whereas if I talk to a, a school of teenagers, 99.9% of them will say mischievous. And it, it's re- I reckon in about 10 years' time, the dictionary will have both pronunciations, but not a different spelling because spelling and sound divorced centuries ago. Um, but we're doing it for a really good reason. And I'm always banging on about this because. There aren't many ivus words anymore, but there are evious words like devious, for example. Mm. So, um, and police officers apparently are starting to talk about grievous bodily harm for the same reason. Whereas, uh, and as another one, you know, we always blame the Simpsons for nuclear. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we guess it's pronounced nuclear. Uh, whereas we don't have any leer words anymore, maybe cochle- cochlear implants cochlear, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we do have molecular and we have secular. So what we're doing is we're just looking around to vocabulary that's current at the moment and then matching that. So we are trying to impose some kind of rule and order, even if we're doing it by mistake. And that's how English evolves. It evolves as much by mistake as anything else. Dave, I do have something related to what we talked about last week, because I think this is one of the most amazing things that I've ever heard and we should have come across, which is the definition of this podcast. You talked about the tallest person that's ever lived. Robert, Robert, Wadlow. Robert Wadlow, yeah. Okay, yeah. You said he had size 36 feet, remember? Mm. Right, so 36 what? Um, so, um, size 36? Yeah. <laughs> it's just so a it's size. Not, yeah, but it's not inches and it's not centimetres. No, it's not. It's barley corn. <laughs> what? Barley corn. Susie, I'm not making this up. He's, he's, he's messing. Uh, no, he's not making this up. I had to look this up, though, Dave, because I had no clue about this. This was a brilliant Neil fact. Um, yes. So I knew about peppercorn rents, which actually did involve a peppercorn because they were right. like nominal things, but never knew about barley corns. So tell, tell, pray tell. It is a measurement of um, length, yeah? And one barley corn. One barley corn, and that has... Um, Worked its way into the measurement of feet, but why barley corns? Yeah, of all things. Well, I didn't read beyond the first <laughs> line. Actually, where does Goody Two Shoes come from? Uh, that's from a lovely um, children's story in which um, there's this young girl who is very, very poor. This is from the 18th century, and she only had one shoe. So it's basically retelling of the Cinderella story. And it was an example of Christian teaching and morals and stuff. So she's really poor. I think she's called um, Margaret or Marjorie Meanwell, um, because she always means well. And she is lovely to everybody. And she's finally rewarded by an elderly gentleman. It's a little bit like the railway stories, um, railway children as well. He gives her another shoe or a pair of shoes. And she's so excited. She runs out onto the street and says, I have two shoes. I have two shoes. And she then becomes known as Goody Two Shoes. But unfortunately, once again, her reputation flipped and it was somebody, you know, who was overly pious. Um, But yeah, it goes all the way back to this 18th century little story. Well, if we can, let's just do more listener stuff really quickly, and you don't have to spend long on these. If you if you know them, let's let's do them. Okay. Uh, soft soft spot. Have a soft spot for someone. Um, I think that's probably just quite not literal, but I think it just means that I'm a little bit more indulgent or um, malleable, or you know, Towards where someone else person. is concerned. I don't think it's got anything to do with the fontan baby's baby's fontanelle. I think it just means you know, I I will indulge them a bit more than I normally. Would. Okay, another one that's always intrigued me is bite the bullet. 
Oh yeah, that's that. Um, famously, I think it was first mentioned in uh, by Rudyard Kipling, actually. So it's in a fictional context, but it was all about the days in medicine where there were no anaesthetics, and so soldiers okay. would literally have to clench down on a bullet in order to withstand the pain. But I think also they used to load their guns sometimes by tearing off the shield or something. I don't know enough about bullets, but tearing something off with their teeth before putting, you know, before loading their gun. So okay. I think there's that aspect to it as well. Uh, last one, if you can, off the hook. What does that mean? Oh, well, off the hook, I think, is just a direct opposite of on the hook. And if you've got someone on the hook, uh, like a fish, you've reeled like them in. Gotcha. Yeah, so I think that came first. I think off the hook, on the hook was about 14th century and off the hook was a few centuries later. Arse foot. Oh. What? Yes. <laughs> is that your nickname from me? <laughs> <laughs> it depends how you walk. I've not seen you walk. Um, but... Uh, yeah, this was one of um, Neil's favourite pickups. An arse foot is basically an old term for a penguin because as they waddle, they kind of sit on their oh, arse. Wow. Originally, it was for a glebe, I think. So it was applied to various waddling creatures, but yeah, particularly a penguin. Can I clarify? When Susie said this is one of Neil's favourite pickups, <laughs> I think I did she means... pick up an arse foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't walk into bars. Well, Dave, listen, my heyday was around the time of Amundsen and Scott. That was my heyday. When I was really, when I was really a Lothario, it was me and Tom Crean used to hit the ice and try and get as many people as possible. We used to throw out the owl. Hey, baby doll. <laughs> You look. You looking for an Irish arse look, foot? Looking for an arse foot? He's heroic, and I am not. <laughs> I've got one last word, Dave. This is absolutely brilliant that Susie has written an article about because we did an episode about the Darien scheme, which is Scotland's ill-fated attempt to set up a colony in uh, Panama in the sixteen yeah, nineties. It didn't go well. Didn't it go didn't well. Go well. No. You haven't heard of it. It didn't go well, as we said at the time. That Braveheart uh, man from Del Monte day crossover that you always wish you had didn't get a sequel but there's a brilliant scott i think it, it is a scottish word isn't it or a, or a scots word um and it's taghelm yes you it's a gaelic it? word yeah tag taghelm um although i think i'm look i'm looking at this now in the oed because you we were talking about this before we came on and they're saying taghelm taghelm so maybe oh, we're pronouncing it Tagarum. Tagar. I suppose if it was an Irish, you'd put T-A-G-H-A-I-R-M. Tagarm. You'd drop the G-H. If it was Irish, you'd be, you'd be Tourum or something, wouldn't it, Neil? Yeah. Drop the G-H in the middle. T- depends on which Irish it is. Tagarum. text Grant Yeah. Okay, just listen to the audit. Tagarum. Anyway, it is this weird thing. So the definition in the OED says it's a method of divination formerly practiced in the Scottish Highlands, but it is so much more than that. It's so much more than just predicting the future in the Highlands. So the very first entry it has from 1774, and it's from a travel book called The Tour of Scotland. And it says, a vast cataract whose waters falling from a high rock jet so far as to form a dry hollow beneath. One of these impostors was sewed up in the hide of an ox and was placed in this concavity. The trembling inquirer was brought to the place where the shade and the roaring of the waters increased the dread of, of the occasion. The question is put and the person in the hide delivers his answer. And so ends this species of divination styled Tagarum. So essentially they've killed an ox, they're wearing its coat and yeah. they are hidden in a hollow below a waterfall. Wow. Divining the future. De- foretelling the future. Should yeah. I fix my mortgage? <laughs> Bear Grylls is just... No, interest rates are going to stabilise. That's absolutely insane. I know. I, there was another one that I discovered on... Um, you mentioned the Purple podcast um, with Giles. I just came across it in the OED and it was something like Pottermomancy and that's divination through the lines on your forehead. Which I guess wow. is like reading your palm, but although now also... everybody has has Botox to their forehead, so they've actually yeah. well, they've that's r- erased their futures. You're looking at the Kardashians, <laughs> going, "I think you're dead. I think you died. <laughs> there is no future for you." And um, if if you want to hear more from Susie, then you can watch Countdown all the time. You can buy her latest book out this Christmas, which is well, it's out now actually. It's an emotional dictionary. It's brilliant. There's a word that jumped out at me. We have an episode coming on soon about aphantasia. In, in season three it's about people who don't have any mind's eye and there's a brilliant word in that called Kopfkino 
Yeah. Which is German for head cinema. Yeah, mind cinema. Yeah, or head cinema. Yeah. So this is when um, you play out the narrative of uh, of an event, normally one that is about to happen that's not going to go well. And mm. um, you can see it all unfolding in your head. So I think for any catastrophizer, uh, your Kopfkino you know, is, um, yeah, it's your, your look, enemy, but also probably your best friend. Can, can I very quickly then throw in a, a German thing I learned the other day? Uh, yeah. On my radio show, I have a thing called Dave's World, where I bring interesting things to my very disinterested other co-host, not Neil. Uninterested. Uninterested. Oh, oh no, not- there's a difference. Not disinterested. Disinterested is entirely different than uninterested. David. Yes, although we've been having that argument as well since the 19th century. But yeah, disinterested means you don't Without care judgment. one way or the other. Yeah. Oh. Uninterested is not interested. Well, then he's definitely uninterested. Okay. Um, anyway, but the, the German one was the brand Pez. So we all know the Pez oh, toys yes. where you, you click the head down and a little sweet comes up. It actually comes from the German word, which is Pfeffermint. Yes. So it's peppermint, and it was the P from pfeffer, an E in there somewhere, and the Z at the end, and it all went zip yeah. into Pez, and here we are. I know it's brilliant. I I, learnt, um, I only learned that on our podcast as well. Um, it's great, actually. Once you look into, I was looking at the origin of licorice, all sorts, and it was from a because a salesman from Bassett's uh, couldn't interest this big storekeeper in um, in the individual ones, and he said, "Okay, that's fine." And he was leaving, and he dropped the whole bag. And uh, the shopkeeper said, actually, I love the idea of that. And that's how licorice all sorts. Parents. No way. Yeah. And Toblerone, we all say Toblerone. Uh, it's the guy's name, Theodore Tobler. And the Italian word for nougat is, Aro- oh, well, it ends in Arone. Yes. So we should actually be saying Toblerone. Toblerone. <laughs> that's what we should. So next time you go to the airport, Neil Delamere, and you're bringing me, on your next trip to Countdown, you're bringing me back a Toblerone. <laughs> I want the one with the raisins in it. Okay, no problem. Ooh. I will I will absolutely do that. Um, Susie Dent, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you. As you can see, how interested we are in this. So we're just throwing random stuff we've collected <laughs> and over. And you knew everything already, so that's what I love. I think you are both <laughs> armchair lexicographers, actually. Uh, surely all lexicographers are armchair lexicographers. Yes. Well, you'd like to think that, <laughs> I think most people think of dictionary offices uh, as being, you know, these kind of really fusty rooms with bearded women and men sitting around <laughs> over these, you know, nasty <laughs> volumes. But actually they're really high tech and they've got a real buzz to them, not just from the computers, because we get to talk about the most brilliant things. So um, it's kind of, we are sitting down usually, but then we're eavesdropping all the time as well, because eavesdropping is where you pick up all the mistakes that we were talking about, you know. like Sorry, this is going to keep going, but I need to now know the etymology of eavesdropping. Oh, okay. Your your eaves are in your corner of your roof. Yes. So it it? was essentially, it used to be eavesdripping. Uh, Well, at least you were standing below the eavesdrip and you would be uh, listening in to your neighbor's conversation that was the idea um so yeah but eavesdropping is essential if you want to be a linguist so sometimes we are just hanging out in street corners and loose and picking up weird <laughs> things listening. look before you say another word if you if you utter another sentence we'll ask you another okay. question so I think <laughs> yeah. we should just let you go Susie Dent thank you so much for coming on Neil Delamere you said you'd bring Susie you brought Susie I'm, I'm bowing down to both of you oh. amazing all I'm saying is thanks again for Susie Dent Part one. There's no way we're not going to stalk her again <laughs> to get her back on the show. Definitely. Thanks a million, Susie. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. A pleasure. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Well, ah, the beam across your face. You know you over-delivered. You got Susie Dent on and she was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, you can't fake that sort of, well, first of all, that level of knowledge. Yeah. But you can't fake that level of enthusiasm that has kept her at the top of her game for 30 years. Totally. You, you get the impression that if you got chatting to her at a library or on a train or on a bus, that she would be very genuinely interested in weird words that you collected. Well, that's you know? it. And, and the thing is, like, as I said at the end of, of part two there, like, we had to let her go because every sentence she uttered had another <laughs> word in that I wanted to get to. And then you realise, no, I'm just really, I'm milking this poor human being for all of her knowledge. We need to let yeah. her go and have a go. She has tea. stuff to do. Yeah. She's a busy woman. So I couldn't recommend her podcast highly enough. It's Something Rhymes With Purple with Giles Brandreth and, and her various books as well. And, and look, sorry, the other thing about the podcast is uh, it, it is utterly fascinating. It's just a study of 
of the language and, and where words come from. And Susie is such an authority, but Giles as well. I yeah. mean, any man who speaks the way Giles does, I would, <laughs> I would listen to him talk about anything at all, forever and ever. And he tells wonderful stories about the theater. And he's just absolutely, the two of them together are brilliant. Uh, and we should say, if you're listening to this and you're a first time listener, because we, I think we probably will get people who have just tuned in for Susie Dent. We have another episode, one of our earliest episodes was on linguistics and the most important number in the world. But also every single episode in this series and in the first series, they are not topical and they are about very interesting things. I think if you like this, you'll like our other ones. So check them all out at your leisure. Yeah, you'll find us on Instagram. He is at Neil Delamere Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. The show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? And we're always looking for suggestions of things we should cover. So please get in touch with us and let us know. Uh, Neil, you've absolutely and utterly killed this. Uh, I mean, I don't know what if what I have next week, which I'm very proud of. I don't know if it's going to come close to Susie Dent, but I guess unless, I should tell you. Unless it's the ghost of Richard Whiteley. Uh... <laughs> You're very much in second place there. What do you got? Well, look, it's very close to Christmas time. So I'm going to bring you incredible Christmas facts, uh, things that you definitely don't know about the Christmas season. But also, because it's Christmas time, we're going to look at the virgin birth. And the fact that the virgin birth does actually happen. Oh. <laughs> I should just mention I am on tour at the moment. I've added extra dates. So I'm doing Vicar Street. I'm doing the Everyman Theatre in Cork, Mermaid Theatre in Bray, and the SSC Arena, as we mentioned before, in Belfast. And all the tickets and all the details of the gigs are on neildelmer.com forward slash gigs. Bye. <laughs>